right, welcome everyone to episode two of the Victory Lobs podcast, coming to you live from Washington, D.C. Today is January 18th, the official start of the Australian Open. I'm Charlie Bowman, this is my co-host Emily Schwartz. How's it going? Uh, We're excited to be here and delivering the second episode. I think we learned a lot from our first episode. Yeah, I would say uh, a couple big takeaways. We have to figure out how to uh, correctly control our voice volume, right? True. That was a good one. Yep, that's it. That was a big one. I need to stop saying like so much, so (laughs) people are probably listening to this cast being like, oh... He says like a lot. Oh, yeah. I think they'll like be like that. (laughs) Great. So, uh, yeah. So, we were originally going to talk about the Australian Open uh, starting today or yesterday. Um, There was kind of some crazy first-round drama to begin, but this BuzzFeed BBC story that just dropped, the first tennis scandal in a while. So yeah, BuzzFeed and BBC, in case you haven't heard, did this, um, I guess, investigative report, and it must have taken them a while to sort of collect all the findings that they did, but this report essentially unveiled for really just like folks outside of the tennis community, it shed light on some um, fixing that's been going on in the sport. And again, for people who have followed the sport, I think the the specific instance that they that they highlight um, isn't necessarily a surprise, but I think what was notable about this big piece was that it suggests that this is a much more pervasive thing than people know about. Yep, yep. Yeah, so we're going to do a little more of a deep dive into that. Uh, we might play a little game, a little yeah. trivia for the Australian Open and see how many we get wrong. Uh, and then we're going to talk to one of our friends about the dark underworld of tennis suicide pools. Oh, yeah. And get some insights. It's a scary that. place. Yeah. So with that, let's get it going. Woo! All right. We are back. Uh, and we're going to talk about the tennis scandal that is... Uh, Maybe rocked. I don't know if that's the right I verb. I would say rocked. Uh, I, the reason I say that is because I had two people, two friends of mine who do not follow tennis, um, text me about this. Mm-hmm. And granted, you know, they, they were texting me because they know that I do care about tennis a lot. But um, it somehow came up in their daily reading habits, probably on Facebook or Twitter or something. So it's definitely tennis news that has gone beyond just the tennis community and hit the mainstream. Sure. And so do you want to give everyone that's listening that might not have known, uh, and this is January 18th again, so the report just came out yesterday on kind of the start of the Australian Open. So, uh, you know, a little bit of a, probably a a time play in terms of, you know, when they were going to drop this story and without a question to the Australian Open. Yeah. So again, so it was, it was done in conjunction between the BBC and BuzzFeed. Uh, We were sort of discussing earlier that it's actually interesting to see those two media groups link up, but essentially there, again, there's been a lot of um, game fixing, match fixing uh, going on for some time. And it really highlights an instance between, um, Two players that I think probably most people aren't familiar with, if you just sort of casually follow the sport, Nikolai Davidenko and Martin Basalo Arguello. 
Um, and those names again may mean, mean nothing to you, but what went on between the two of them uh, in 2007-2008 really struck investigators as particularly suspicious. Um, in that, you know, Debbie Denko was ranked considerably higher than uh, Vassal Arguello, and yet there was clear evidence, really contextual evidence, that there was some some sketchy stuff going down. So most of the fixing uh, seems to have happened um, between two sort of betting groups that seem to be Russia, based in Russia and Northern Italy. Um, and some of like the big revelations of this piece were they found that there's basically this core group of 16 players, all of which they say have at some point been in the top 50 who have been involved with throwing matches um, over the course of time. And these aren't just, you know, smaller ATP tournaments, although the bulk of them are. Uh, allegedly, this also happened at Wimbledon and at the French Open. Mm -hmm. So this piece kind of exposes, uh, it, it walks through the different units that were tasked with investigating what was going on based on these suspicious betting records and winning and losing records. And the idea was to kind of shed light on, okay, here's this problem. It's been being swept under the rug. No one's giving it time of day. These players are still playing. They're not being punished. Um, but then it kind of ends there. Um, what do you think, Charlie? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think my first thought when I was reading this was this, this sounds like a movie or it something does. like it that. It definitely like, does. It was just so ridiculous. Um, you know, I think kind of how... For, for those that don't know how the, you know, the big kind of scandal in 2008 really worked was Davidenko and Aguello were playing in um, kind of some smaller tournament in like Poland. Poland, yeah. Um, and Davidenko had been the previous year's He won the previous year. He was the fourth seed. Mm -hmm. uh, Aguello was like 87th in the country. So all the betting money... Uh, would probably be on Davidenko, mm -hmm. right? Correct. Just in terms of like, if you're looking at pure odds, the chances of Davidenko winning are better than Aguello. Correct. So you might have some people that, you know, maybe really like Aguello and they're like, maybe this is his chance. Uh, but there was massive and massive amounts of money put on Aguello at the start mm -hmm. and during the match. Correct. And that actually was swinging odds into Aguello's favor, yes. just from a betting perspective. Uh, and that kind of was an immediate flag where the betting agencies were kind of like, well, this doesn't look uh, normal. This isn't a normal pattern. There's a massive amount. I think it was like 10 times uh, more money on this match than in most matches in similar tournaments. Yeah. And uh, all of a sudden, Davidenko, who's up a set mm -hmm. and a couple games in the second set, uh, comes down with a foot injury. Yep. And goes to the sideline and has a, a little bit of a weird conversation with the doctor saying, like, is this something I could retire or, you know, retire from the match? Right. Uh, goes back in for three more points or something and then calls it quits. Yeah. And so Aguello wins and all the money that was on Aguello then cashes in and people came away with 300,000 plus pounds. Yeah, exactly. And again, this was so suspicious. And just as a reminder, we're talking, this was eight years ago, roughly. This this was a long time ago. Um, but this really has been highlighted as the premier example of fixing. And I don't know if it's just because it was, it's the most clear case or if it's because, you know, the amount of money behind it was you know, more considerable than in other instances. 
or really again if it's just like they have the most evidence um, that something was was obviously going on with this match but it's it's the crux of the piece sure. um, to sort of illustrate what, what's going on and again the, the piece doesn't really get into specifics regarding the other 16 core players that it mentions as being involved in what it describes as an ongoing fixing scandal and it suggests that you know the the powers that be um, in the ATP have certainly been aware that there's a lot of investigation going on and um, some players are being looked at very skeptically um, but you know the the claim is that they're ignoring this right that they're choosing to let this go on that there's been investigations that point to something's amiss and that they're just kind of turning their head and, and looking the other way. So I guess one of the questions I have for you, Charlie, is, you know, I think in, in, in all sports, you're going to get a few bad eggs, right? Yeah. What makes this particular fixing situation um, notable? Yeah, I mean, f first off, I wasn't surprised. I mean, it's, it's funny, like tennis <laughs> only has typically like four moments a year, right? The kind of grand slams. So I almost look at this as probably a positive for tennis in a way and that more people are putting eyeballs on it. Positive might be kind of a strong term. Uh, but I was thinking about it and, you know, one of the, the things, it's it seems to me like it's the easiest, one of the easier sports to really actually fix a match. Um, if you're looking at other prominent sports, you either have to convince a lot more people yeah. to... Uh, be in on it. Uh, whereas this, you can essentially do one or two people max. Uh, if you're trying to fix a soccer match, if you're trying to fix a football, basketball, baseball, you got to convince an entire team yeah. in order to play that. And granted, there's things you can do that might, you know, let a goal slip in or whatever. But uh, it just seems like uh, it was fairly easy to actually get away with it. I agree. And it should be noted that neither Aguello or Davidenko was it actually prosecuted or like actually held accountable, held accountable yeah. for um, you know this match fixing. They actually got off free, and you know there's continued playing. Yeah. Continued playing. There's evidence that, uh, of course, it looked kind of shady, but you know from their perspective, they weren't accused. Yeah. Or, yeah, and I think actually just going back to what you said about how you weren't surprised at it. And how, you know, if there was a sport that was tailor-made for tennis, it's probably this one, as many, many publications and people who have been following this story have pointed out. I think, you know, there's there's basically three ways to fix a tennis match. Um, and BuzzFeed goes into this a little bit, but so everyone listening is aware, it starts out very simple, right? You can take one player and you say, okay, you know, skew the match, do whatever you need to do whether it's retire, whether it's just to, you know, double fault as many times as you possibly can, just throw the match, lose, whatever. The second way to mat to um, fix the match is requires a little bit more effort, maybe, but um, it's basically kind of what Davy Denko right. allegedly did, right? It's, it's make your mark, play, play as you typically would. Um, you're not throwing anybody off. You, you take the first set and then you kind of tank from there, right? So maybe people who are, um, you know, betting get scared a little bit, um, or again, just trying not to, to throw anyone off, you know, you're playing well, you win that first set and suddenly you get sick or whatever. And then the third way is, is definitely a little more specific. And I think the player has to have some degree of 
you know, they have to be a higher quality player a little bit. So maybe it's they have to um, win a set by a specific margin, right? They have to they have to win by two, or um, they may agree to lose the second set, or something a little more hyper specific that takes, I think, a little bit more um, of a you know, it's 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 much more it takes more skill to do that. I would say just to that point, that was actually when I read that to me that seems like something you could continually repeat and get away with Yes, is, you know, uh, I it's just sports betting. Now you can bet on halftime scores. You can bet on who wins the first set, the second set, the third set, whatever it may be. That to me scares me a little bit more because if I'm a really good tennis player and I'm in a five set grand slam tournament and I'm paying, you know, the first round or the second round, I mean, you know, why don't I throw a, a, a like a, a set or two mm-hmm. and recoup $100,000 and then still end up winning? Yep. And so your kind of alibi is, well, I still won the match. Why would I throw, right. a, you know, a set and it's still win the match? So I think there's a lot more from a tennis player's perspective to say, like, look, I still won. Right. So that was the part that scared me about, you know, I think the other part that just kind of, you know, makes me think moving forward is I've, you know, I've seen so many inner injuries in tennis. Now I'm always going to think, oh, that person withdrew withdrew from like, you know, the second round of Indian Wells or whatever. Was that really an injury or was he doing it? So it's going to make people think a little bit more about tennis players that are doing this type of stuff. Yeah, I totally agree. One of the things that I'm not sure that we specifically said when we started talking about this was that no players were actually named. Zero names besides Aguello and Davidenko. Exactly. So the piece talks about, again, this group of roughly 16 players, but provides no names. Mm -hmm. And I think it took the wind out of the revelations a little bit. Right. Um, and a lot of players have come out making statements um, since this piece has come out. The ATP made an official statement about it. And, you know, Roger Federer said something to the effect of like, listen, like, I want to see the names. Tell me who the names are. Um, how do we feel about this? Do we think that there's going to be some sort of follow up where names where names are revealed? How challenging is it to actually be in a place where you can say with confidence, we know that this player is involved in, in these scandals. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that's a really good question. It's hard to be very credible when they're not naming specific names. Uh, and they didn't, they even mentioned they didn't have access to phone records or bank accounts or things like that. So they couldn't be fully, uh, they, they didn't actually really know, (laughs) or they couldn't actually fact check everything. Which made me a little kind of nervous in terms of, you know, what are they, you know, what actually information do they have? Um, was it just a name in passing? All this kind of stuff. Um, I think it would be a little more validation if we could actually learn the names. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it just seems like it was a lot of, uh, I don't know. It was like, I guess not necessarily high impact reporting, but it made a big splash. Yes. And to me, we'll see where it ends up. But I would, I would bet that you know eventually someone will. Interesting choice of word. <laughs> <laughs> right. I would bet that uh, 
someone will come out and try to discredit this report, whether it's players, whatever that may be, the ATP. Uh, and I think that eventually some of these names will start leaking. And if they're more, if they're prominent enough names, I knew Davidenko. I don't know if a lot of other people knew Davidenko, but you know he was still number four in the world at one point. Uh, so pretty prominent tennis player. If there's more people like that, an American, this will pick up steam. I still don't know though if you know if this is the only thing that comes out. If there's really going to be much repercussion. They mentioned in the article, you know, one of the guys was actually texting another guy to right. get him in on it. Right. Uh, Djokovic came out today and said he'd been offered two hundred grand right. uh, to throw a match. I think it happens a lot more than people think yeah which is kind of scary and goes against everything that sports stand for which is a little sad but yeah we'll see we'll see what more comes out but it was just kind of a an interesting thing to drop on the eve of the Australian Open I think you know if anything it might make people watch a little more I think so which is yeah it backwards fascinating right but I, I agree the article mentioned nothing about women's tennis. This was strictly men's tennis. True. And I do wonder if similar things are going on, um, you know, on the women's side of things. Yeah. I think that anytime there's a huge disparity in how much the top people make and the bottom people make, there's going to be these types of things. I agree. Uh, the article mentioned, you know, it costs like a tennis player something around 100 thousand pounds or something a year to just get to places right. and all travel, that stuff. Travel, equipment, coaches. Right. You know. And if someone offered me as the hundredth ranked tennis player, like, you know, 50 K to throw a match or something like that in a first round of a not that prestigious tournament, you would at least think about it. Yeah. I'm not saying I would do that, but it's something to consider when you're young and you're starting out and, you know, there isn't much uh, media scrutiny on you, I think you can get away with that stuff, which is, again, a scary thing to think about. Yeah, I agree. I think one more thing before we kind of close out on this is there's one of the interesting things to note is that there's a bookmaking agency called William Hill that's actually being billed as one of the top sponsors of the Australian Open. Right. How do we feel about that? I don't know. I mean, we're in an era of DraftKings and FanDuel. I think betting is such a large part of sports, even though I'm not a gambler. I don't condone it. I don't think we should be betting on this stuff. Uh, it's always going to be a part of sports. And so I don't necessarily have a big problem with it. I mean, after all, the gambling agency was the one that actually exposed it's what true. they thought was a match-fixing thing. Um, and it was interesting how some of the people tried to discredit gambling, you know, being able to figure this stuff out based on how people are betting as kind of not really an important aspect to match-fixing, which yeah. I thought was interesting. Yeah. So this might be a hot take question, but what, what would you think, you know, if this thing picked up steam and maybe someone that's very prominent got their name looped up in this, mm -hmm. How do you think you fix that? What do you think you do? And I think they've gone through um, kind of a, uh, a renaissance of like, you know, match fixing. And there's rules in place now where 
you know, they don't even need to have like probable cause. They can accuse you of it and ban you for life, even if, you know, there's a lot of right. they have contextual a lot clues can yeah. exactly what, you know, what do you think, what, how do you get past match fixing? What do you do in the sport of tennis to get past this? If it's something that's pervasive and, uh, has just been continuing, continuing on and on and on. I don't know. I think it's a hard question. The, fr the first word that comes to mind is consequences, right? Um, but as this story is illustrated, it's very hard to point to concrete, tangible stuff. On. I don't know. Maybe it's some sort of uh, system internally, right, where, where players can can report um, up to the authorities when, when something wonky is going on. Again, how do you totally prove something? I don't know. Right. Um, but consequences really have to be um, an important part of the equation here. Yeah, and it's funny to me how they have... I think if you're fixing matches, you can get banned from tennis for life. So they have, like, the highest form of punishment, but it just never seems like it would get to that point, right? They have this really high bar of, like, you know, if you match fix you're out of tennis. Yeah. I can't ever see anyone getting to that level. So you mentioned something earlier that struck me, and it's whenever there's such a disparity in pay between the top players and really the rest of the pack, right? So let's say sub, let's say sub 50. Yeah. Even though realistically it could even be like sub 30, sub 40. Right. Let's say sub 50. Mm -hmm. um, it is really hard to get in It is really hard to get in All right, so one of the things that we wanted to talk about was uh, something called a tennis suicide pool, which sounds a lot more dangerous than it actually is. Uh, I've participated in them in the past, and this is Charlie's first year doing one. Um, but we brought in our friend uh, Renji Yu to talk about um, how they're organized a little bit, uh, because he's sort of a master organizer, and they're pretty fun. So Renji, why don't, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah, I'm RJ, so I've been running a suicide pool for the last, like, two and a half years or so. Um, I think, if you're not familiar with the term suicide pool, it might also be called survivor pool in some circles. Uh, I think that one actually probably makes more sense, but suicide pool just sounds cooler, so I go with that. Um, so, yeah, I think I discovered suicide pools, I think, randomly on a, some sort of tennis forum uh, back then, and basically the way a suicide pool works is that uh, each week you select one player and you move on if that player wins. But the catch is that you're not allowed to select any player more than once. Uh, so the idea is that each week you want to sort of select a player that will win that week, but probably won't go much further. Because if they do, they might sort of like ruin your bracket. Um, and so you just sort of repeat this for the entire uh, fortnight. And whoever sort of makes the furthest wins. Um, and, you know, depending on how large the pool is and how unpredictable the tournament is, uh, it's not always the case that someone managed to finish the tournament where they get, like, uh, picks for every day. Uh, at some point, people just run out of picks because you get an unpredictable final or something like that. So, uh, yeah, I find suicide pool is pretty interesting. I think in tennis, there aren't too many sort of, like, uh, you know, like fantasy competitions or whatever. You have, like, bracket challenges, but that's about it. Um, it's not like football where you have, like, fantasy football, which is more involved. Um, I think football is actually another area where suicide pools tend to be run a lot. Um, so one benefit of suicide pools is that uh, they're they're fairly low commitment. Uh, I think you don't have to know that much about tennis to be involved in playing it. 
but it does get you more interested in uh, in tennis. Like you get to watch, you get to sort of pick a game that features two players you probably never even heard of, and then you sort of have a you sort of have a stake in uh, whatever happens to that one. And you also look at everyone else's picks, and you hope they lose. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I found that uh, sometimes, and sort of, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the way that the one that you operate works, right? Is, you know, what is it like? The first four rounds are public, and then mm-hmm. after that. Uh, the picks become private, so you're not potentially influenced by who other people are picking. Right. Uh, the suicide pools I've been running started out with like 10-ish people, and now it's about 25. Uh, so that dynamic is a little more interesting when you have fewer people, because uh, if you're just looking to win, then you don't necessarily have to like craft some sort of strategy that gets you all the way to the end. Whereas when you have more people, uh, you probably just have to do that anyway to win. Um, so I think... Originally, I didn't run it with uh, what I called private picks. Um, so before that, everyone just entered their picks on a spreadsheet. Uh, and so, but I realized the issue with that is that like, maybe you just want to like copy someone else's picks for the entire duration, in which case you'll do exactly the same as them. Um, so actually, with private picks, it would be like some divergence between people uh, after the first few rounds. Um, I said I'd keep the first few rounds public still, just because like, you sort of get to see what other people are thinking a little bit. Um, and if you're new to the pool, then like maybe you're not too familiar with like uh, how, what kind of what level of player you should be picking and that kind of stuff. Uh, so yeah, the way I do it is I just keep the first two rounds public, and then afterwards everyone has to submit via some Google form, uh, and you don't see everyone's picks until after all the games have started. Uh, I thought I thought it was a good balance. Yeah, I was gonna uh, say I think it's a bad sign when two people that are starting a tennis podcast both are out of the suicide pool of the Australian Open after the first day. Emily and I have already been eliminated from both the men's and the women's. For what it's worth, we had very reasonable picks, though. True. <laughs> like, they, yeah. they weren't stupid picks. I don't think. Um, yeah, I agree. So I have, I have a question. For a Grand Slam suicide pool, what's the max amount of picks that you make like, if you were going to go all the way to the finals, how many picks would you make over the course of the tournament? Yeah, so surprisingly, it actually depends on which grand slam you're talking about. Uh, I think, so, the, the slams are mostly structured the same. They take place over two weeks, but there's some variations in them. Uh, for example, the French Open has three first, three first round days, so they play, like, part of the top and then part of the bottom and then, like, part of both. Um, and so you have to make, like, three first-round picks, and then uh, I think you also make two quarter-final picks, and so on. Uh, so I think that one you wind up with needing, like, 14 picks or something like that. Uh, whereas something like Wimbledon, they actually combined the draw uh, very early on. So around the fourth round, uh, you only have to make one pick for the fourth round because it's all played on one day. And so I think at Wimbledon, you actually only need, like, 10 picks total. Yeah. Um, one of the things yeah. that I appreciate about the suicide pools is I start paying attention to matches that I wouldn't have otherwise paid attention to um, just by virtue of, you know, seeing how my, you know, whoever I picked is, is going to do. So I, I really like that about, about the game. It's fun. Yeah. And I think you brought up a good point. Like I've played fantasy football for a long time and there isn't really something you can do with tennis like that. I would say mm-hmm. there isn't necessarily something like weekly or daily or whatever, uh, you can necessarily do from tennis. And so I think suicide pool is kind of a good go between in a way to kind of stay involved in the tournament, even if, you know, you don't necessarily care or it's the early rounds and you're only interested in the later rounds or whatever. 
Yeah, one thing I actually like doing is uh, sort of each day when I uh, tell people that the schedule's coming out for the following day, I try to write, like, a little bit of a recap, um, just based on, like, any matches I've watched, as well as, like, just weird things I see with the bracket. Um, I think some of the people playing play the suicide pool aren't super into tennis, like, maybe they'll watch the later rounds, and so I think those recaps help get people a little more involved in the earlier rounds. They get to hear about, like, really weird stuff that's happened in the first few days, um, and they get to laugh about their bad luck. Yeah. <laughs> so do you have like a couple sleeper suicide pool picks that you always go to like in the first or second rounds of these tournaments or do you actually you maybe you don't want to say those out loud but do you have a certain <laughs> uh, players that you usually pick at the beginning of tournaments yeah i think it depends a lot on the bracket um i sometimes just look for like you know qualifiers or relatively low-ranked players who i think just aren't going to win their matches, and regardless of sort, almost regardless of who they're playing, I think that's probably good to pick against them. Um, I used to have some picks that like they tended to be middle ranked, but they always like coincidentally drew bad people. Um, but actually now I think some of those people like uh, I don't know, like Suarez Navarro in the women's tournament, they actually like gotten better over time. I've noticed. Um, I, I've sort of been like following more of their careers since I've wound up picking them in every like suicide pool. Um, so now they're actually better, and now I'm not really sure what to do with that. We thought there were a lot of, there was some safety with Pear, but evidently Noah Rubin <laughs> decided to ruin everyone's day there, or make everyone's day, depending on. But I think you brought up a good point in that the way when I was picking my picks for the suicide pool, I was thinking of who was most likely to win, and you looked at it as my, who's more, who is more likely to lose. So I think that's just kind of a, a nuance to the strategy around it where you're yeah. looking at, okay, well, this is like some low level qualifier. He's more likely to lose rather than, you know, this is someone who's established or, you know, on a winning streak or whatever did well last tournament. Um, so it's just interesting to see the kind of the nuances and how people pick uh, specific players. Um, I think what some people do for the French open or the, or Wimbledon, um, they look for like specialists who are particularly good on clay um, or like people who are, somewhat high ranked, but actually kind of bad on clay. Uh, they started to try to, like, you know, pick in those matches. Are there specific players that you don't pick in survivor survivor pools like Warenka because he might lose in the second round? Are there people that you stay away from at all? Yeah, I think with someone like Warenka, well, I tend to pick him late anyway if he's still around. Um, then I think he's, like, an okay pick, and, you know, he's certainly uh, a good player overall. Um... Although sometimes it throws a wrench in whatever your plans are. If he, like, loses in the second round, you're like, oh, I was, like, planning on picking him in the quarters or something. And I have to find a new person to pick in the quarters. And at that point, you're sort of, like, picking a random, like, unseated player that somehow managed to get through. And you're like, oh, it's not going to go so well. Right. Um, I don't know. I, I, think, I think early rounds, I tend to not want to pick, like, very high volatility players, even if they're good. Um, I think, like, uh, I guess Globus has dropped off a bit, but he was an example before. Um he was like you know always ranked like 20 something yeah. uh he was facing unseated players but he was just so high volatility that i didn't want to pick him anyway yeah. uh i felt like there's still just a high chance he randomly loses to a nobody yeah i love fanini into that same group yeah yeah fanini uh you know he might have like a meltdown on court and then he's gonna like destroy all his rackets and he gets qualified or something you never know with him uh, well, this was super informative, I know, for me. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have an Australian Open pick? Who do you think is going to win from the men's and women's side? Um, 
I feel like on the men's side, it's hard to bet against Djokovic at this point. Although, personally, I've always been more of a Federer fan, so certainly I hope he manages to get through him in the semis. Um, on the women's side, it's a lot more unpredictable. Uh, certainly, Serena Williams is still a favorite, but she's certainly getting older and dropping off a little bit. Uh, I think my, I don't know, it's not really a dark horse pick since she's already won it twice, but I feel like Azarenka is probably starting to come back. Um, she's not seeing it too well, but her draw doesn't look too bad. Uh, and I guess she's starting to play at full again. So, we'll see. Should be more competitive. Awesome. Yeah. I'm excited. Anything else? Cool. Thanks for oh. your time. Call again. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, so we like to play games. We do. And we thought we would play some games on this podcast to have a little fun with um, kind of a multitude of different things. We were thinking about playing some Australian Open trivia and then maybe realized we weren't that good at Australian Open trivia, but yeah, learned yeah. yeah, right. But learned a lot <laughs> in the in the research process. Um, so this is a game that we just titled First Name, Last Name. First Name, Last Name, where we take qualifiers uh, from different tournaments and Emily and I get to practice spelling their names. Yeah. And if you we'll want say. me to use the name in a sentence, I'll just say the name, <laughs> place tennis. Okay. Something like we that. We should do tennis Mad Lib sometime. Great. Yeah. Ooh, good call. <laughs> um, so I'll start by giving you a few names. Okay. Uh, Emily is going to do male qualifiers, and I'm going to do female qualifiers. Uh, Emily. Mm-hmm. Would you please spell Joseph Kavalik from Slovakia? SVK, Slovakia. Mm-hmm. Joseph Kavalik. Okay, so. The etymology is Slovakian. <laughs> uh, first name J O S E F Kavalik. K A V L I C. Uh, that was okay. It was incorrect. Joseph is J-O-Z-E-F. Hmm. And Kavalik is K-O-V-A-L-I-K. Well, that's nice. Now and, I know. And he is playing another qualifier, Marco Trunglidi of Argentina. Trunglidi? Trunglidi. Marco, M-A-R-C-O. Trungliti, T-R-U-N-G-L-I-T-I. That was close. So Trungliti is T-R-U-N-G-E-L-L-I-T-I. Okay, that one that one was challenging. Yeah, I thought Trungliti sounded a little bit Italian. It does. To me. Maybe he's Trunglidi. Italian. Well, he's. It says he's Argentine. But right, but you know, true. might be Italian. Yeah, that, right. That's actually a good analysis. <laughs> all right, all, all right. right. So I, I was zero for two there. Okay. Um, I am going to throw two qualifiers your way from the women's side of the draw. This is um, this is a qualifier from day two. Um, this woman is from Latvia, and. Anastasia Sevastova. <laughs> Give me the way harder one. Anastasia Sevastova. S- 
Sevastova. So for Anastasia, I'm going to say A-N-A-S-T-A-S-I-A. And then what was the last name again? Sevastova. Sevastova. S-V-E-S-T-O-V-A. Just terrible. <laughs> They're not easy. So, um, Anastasia was close. You missed a J, though. So it's A-N-A-S-T-A-S-I-J-A. Oh, man. Anastasia. I would have never gotten the silent J. So, uh, and then Sevastova, S-E-V-A-S-T-O-V-A. Okay. So, that, that's a pretty yeah. difficult one. Yeah. Um... All right, let me let me see who we have uh, next. Here's a good one for you. Tamira Pajek. Uh, abbreviation is AUT. I guess that's Austria. Tamira Pajek. Tamira T A M I R A Pajek. Oh man. P A J-E-C. All right. You bueno on Tamira. Like, A-plus job there. Pajek is P-A-S-Z-E-K. Oh, wow. But I actually did spell one of the... You did. Four parts. You did. That was great. I think that's better than... Oh, no, I got Marco. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so we were both one for four if we one break for four. it into first name, last name. Cool. I like that. Yeah, that's pretty fun. I think we'll we'll do this more frequently, and hopefully our spelling skills will get a little better. I hope so. I think so. Yeah, I think we're uh, we're due to get better. Cool. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Victory Lobs. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Victory Lobs, or you can email us victorylobspodcast at gmail.com. We will see you next week.